Hello everyone, as Aaron said, I'm Zoe, I'm a student and I've been coming along to St Nick's since the very beginning, so a couple of years now. Um, I'm in my final year studying biology, which means not long until I embark into the world of unemployment, which is very exciting. Um, but yeah, this is a really fun time, isn't it? It's Lent. We've got there already. The year has gone very quickly. Um, and today we're going to be talking a bit about food. Well, more, more hunger, really. Um, so I wonder, I don't know if some people have shared this already in the chat or on the watch along, but maybe you'd like to just let people know what you've done for Lent, what your choice has been. Great. Right, let's get started. Over the past couple of weeks, we have embarked on a journey as a church, and we are trying to work out what it means to live a life with a beautiful resistance of the world. How do we live um, in the countercultural way that God calls us to live? And so we started with an introduction to the series from Andy Spence and then Andy Carter, two Andys in a row, we love it. Um, he spoke to us last week a bit about rest and how that must resist exhaustion. And then this week we're moving on to talk about how hunger must resist apathy. And I've got to admit, I did have to look up what apathy means. It's not really the kind of word I remember learning, you know? Um, so I did a bit of research, got on Google, and found out that basically apathy means meh. It's, it's like a complacent response, something devoid of emotion, there's no feeling, there's no action. And it seems to me that increasingly we're living in a world that either evokes an extreme response or complete apathy. In the heart of an individual or in an organisation, we've seen polarised elections alongside non-voters, um, issues of racial injustice globally and topics of sexuality and freedom in the church. And either we find that people engage entirely and oppositely, or not at all. And so the church, we as a people globally, we're given the mission in the Bible to love and renew the world, to exhibit and teach of a love that's so transformational that not even the hardest heart can withstand it. And this call to mission, um, kind of to arms in the kingdom of God, is a mission that is so completely without apathy, without complacency. And yet sometimes it can be quite hard to see the, the change, the fruit of the work of the church, because we constantly see these new challenges arising around us. Who would have thought that this time last year um, we'd be starting a year of a pandemic? That's mad. No one could have expected it. And yet we're still so different from the church in the New Testament and also the church even 50 years ago. There's a completely different context. So in this place of maybe helplessness how do we carry out this mission God gives us 
we come to a point where we need to ask God, how do we carry out this mission you've given us? And so just looking at that um, story that Aaron read for us, let's just go through it in a bit more detail. So Jesus has just had a moment of revelation with some of his closest friends where he basically shows them that he's the Messiah. And he comes down a mountain, he loves mountains, um, and finds the rest of the disciples gathered together. And around them is this big crowd of people, and they're like some really theological people arguing. And a father is like pretty distraught. He's brought his little boy um, to come and be healed by the disciples, set free from a spirit. And it hasn't worked. The disciples are so stressed. They've done everything by the book, exactly how Jesus told them to, and they just can't free this boy from a spirit. And then Jesus, just like that, this kid is free. He's standing up, walking, talking, living normally without being controlled by this thing anymore. And the disciples are just like, what? Sorry? How did that happen? Why couldn't we do it? Lord, we did everything you asked us to. And Jesus says, this one, this kind of miracle, this kind of thing that just happened can only come out through prayer and fasting. So, let's dig a bit deeper. The first point I want to come to, it might sound a bit weird at first, but it's this. Recognise your hunger. In our bodies, we have these sets of cues to let us know when we're hungry. Um, There's like an empty stomach. Lots of people get hypersensitive to the cold. Um, For me, my biggest one is definitely getting hangry. Uh, My poor flatmates can't quite cope sometimes with how moody I get when I need to be fed. And... um, If we just leave these things and don't do anything to address the problem, they get worse. Our stomach feels more empty. I get more moody. Or we get more cold, more sensitive to what's happening around us. And the simple solution is have a snack and feel the perspective that you feel, the perspective that you have when you have a full stomach. And I think really that we can have the same awareness with our spiritual needs too. I don't know if you have the same experience as I do, but if I'm off with God for some reason, if I'm angry about something or actually the way the world works looks a bit more attractive than how God calls me to live, um, I become a bit more irritable. Um, like moment of vulnerability here like I, I find people who are pursuing their faith kind of annoying and worship can maybe seem a bit too loud and actually the things I'm praying for I feel a bit hopeless and helpless about I guess I'm spiritually hangry when I'm in that place 
And I know that these cues for spiritual hunger can look different for different people. Lots of people probably won't care about how loud worship is or if their friend is going through it with God. But maybe let's apply these kind of ideas to the story we've just read. So these theologians who are bickering, they're just confused, they want to have an answer, and they're irritable. The boy's father who's mourning his son underneath the arguments, he just feels hopeless, desperate for his little boy to survive. And the disciples, they're trying to find the solution to their methods desperately and trying to do things as Jesus told them to. They're so frustrated. Everything they already know has been used to try and save him. What more can they possibly do? They're desperate and they're hungry for a move of God that's beyond their current understanding. And actually recognising our hunger, our need for God, can be quite a humbling experience, quite a humbling thing to do. Often seeing our helplessness um, and still choosing to act, to resist apathy, is, yeah, it's a hard journey. It comes with a step of trusting that God is bigger and he's better than everything that's going on around us. It's surrendering our control to him again. And so Jesus, if we take it back to the story, when the disciples, they ask him why they can free this boy, and Jesus explains that that specific type requires prayer and fasting. You might be able to see a bit where we're going to go with this. So that was the first point. Remember and recognise your hunger. So how then do we actually pursue this hunger in a world that requires a new practice to be able to engage with what's going on around us? We're in a pandemic. Our actions are limited. How do we live in a way that doesn't bend the knee to the culture of the world, but actually instead serves the kingdom of God through action? How do we see our hunger, our problem, and pursue that to create a practice. This requires, I think, God's input. When we feel these cues of spiritual hunger, when we see that God's attention is required in a situation for breakthrough, Jesus points us to fasting. And I think fasting is quite a scary concept. the act of giving up something in order to give God time. And throughout the Bible, we encounter fasting as a practice of giving up food, of not eating. So Moses, in the Old Testament, before he receives the Ten Commandments, he fasts for 40 days. And those Ten Commandments are pretty relevant still to a lot of our culture today. I, like, I sang a song about the Ten Commandments in my primary school. Um, in fact, I sang it today when I thought about it. Um, and Esther, Esther also fasts. She calls the whole of the Jewish people to fast for three days so that they can free a nation. You know, free a whole people. And Jesus himself fasts for 40 days before beginning his ministry 
And at the end of his fast, the devil tempted him. A man who had not eaten for 40 days, because Jesus is both fully God and fully, fully man. And he said to Satan, with a tummy emptier than most of us will ever be able to know, man does not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so now we see that God, he has an answer to our desperation. He has this solution. We can live on the word, on the word from the mouth of God. And fasting, because we saw that Jesus points to prayer and fasting, fasting can be a route to this. So what is the role of pursuing your hunger relative to this? I think essentially it kind of comes down to making a decision. So it's, it's recognising the cues, assessing the problem, and then thinking, I'm not going to ignore this. I want to do something about it. I'm deciding to make a change here. On D-Day in World War II, King George, um, he decided to call the nation to this, to earnest, continuous, and widespread prayer. They had been planning for this invasion for months, preparing in so many ways, and still the leader of the nation called them to prayer recognised their state of desperation, their state of hunger, and said, I want you to pray. I want us to focus on God. He voiced his hunger. And so the decision is made, the intention to pray, to even fast, is spoken about. What about the practicality? The thought of not eating is big. It can seem so simple, but when your tummy starts to grumble and the emptiness is there, it, it physically aches as well. And this fight can actually seem even more so if food maybe is something that you've struggled with in the past or you even do that now. I know for me it's been quite a journey to be able to be in a place where I can now fast from food safely, but... I would not have been able to do this a few years ago. So God knows the physical impact of not eating, not just because Jesus fasted himself, but also in Mark, when Jesus feeds the 4,000, not the 5,000, a different time, um, he, he does this in response to knowing that if he sent these crowds of people to walk home after they'd been there for three days listening to him teach, they were going to have some people fainting on the way home. God cares about our well-being. He cares that we do not faint from hunger. And so if Jesus calls us to fast for particularly challenging issues, for that friend who doesn't know what it's like to live in freedom, or maybe your child who's walked away from Christ, or maybe even for the people who are living as Christians in countries where actually to have faith is to die. 
if Jesus wants us to do this, for, to fast and pray for these things, but also wants us to live without damaging our bodies through food, through addiction, through disordered eating, how do we then fast in a safe way, both physically and spiritually? Practically, the act of fasting is giving up a physical need for a spiritual one, intimacy and relationship with God. So in this way, we can see that there is room to be able to fast in a way that doesn't require food. Um, Maybe it comes down to giving up a need for social interaction, quite possible in lockdown. No walks with friends, no social media, no contact, but actually devoting all your conversation to God. Maybe it's giving up the need for entertainment. I know Netflix has probably been a good friend of mine for the past year. Um, But saying no to that instead, Netflix, see you later, time to pray. For fasting, fasting without prayer, um, it becomes dieting. And this can be, again, where the danger of um, having hunger with apathy comes in or even hunger with a motivation for social gain or achievement. In Matthew 6, verses 16 to 18, Jesus says this. And when do you fast, don't make it obvious, as the hypocrites do. For they try to look miserable and disheveled, so people will admire them for their fasting. I tell you the truth, that is the only reward they will ever get. But when you fast, comb your hair and wash your face, then no one will notice that you are fasting, except your father who knows what you do in private. And your father who sees everything will reward you. A call to fast is not a call to be holier than anyone else. It's not a call to receive public admiration for the sacrifices that we're making. Jesus also doesn't ask us to fast as a way of manipulating God to answer our prayers, but asks us to fast for the sake of knowing God deeper to gain God's perspective of a situation. We can't guarantee that God will answer every prayer we make while we fast because ultimately we know that God is working for our good. And sometimes we just can't know what our good looks like. God is so much bigger than our understanding. And so Dr. Don Whitney, he's a professor of theology in the States. He sets out a really great set of questions that can help us as we fast to make sure we're doing it for the right reasons. First of all, he talks about that moment when maybe you get hungry or you get bored, depending on what you're fasting from. And he says, oh, I'm hungry, I'm bored. And if your next question after that 
is, oh, and how long until it's over? Then we're doing this for the wrong reasons. We have got the wrong motive. But if instead our question is, why am I hungry or bored? The answer becomes, because I'm fasting. And then why am I fasting? It brings us back to the beginning, to the purpose. Our hunger in this situation, our boredom in this situation, serves the higher purpose of a fast and calls us back to prayer, to seeking God's wisdom. Our gain from fasting is to have more clarity on a situation or more perspective or even just peace. But the petitioning that we make in, um, for a person or for a situation, this petition we make in prayer as we fast, it makes a difference. And we've, we've seen the fruit of fasting time and time again throughout history. In the book we're following, Beautiful Resistance, John Tyson gives credit to years of his father's fasting and prayer for his return to faith. He talks also of churches fasting in the States that have seen transformation within racial justice movements. And sometimes through fasting, I found that for me, I just find some peace or inspiration for a situation, even though fasting is really difficult too. A friend of mine will talk about how um, when she fasted in secondary school, the place she would go when she wasn't eating would be the toilet. It was the only place she could go to pray. And you might remember in school, um, bathrooms were quite big places. And so these girls would walk in, see her praying and be like, what is going on? And I love that God used her devotion then just to show other people what it's like to know Jesus. Maybe they didn't become Christians on the spot, but I can imagine it's definitely an image that would have stayed with them. So, what have we been through? We've said, first, recognise and remember your hunger. Learn and observe your, your cues for when you're spiritually hungry. Second, Pursue your hunger. Make a decision and take the step from thought to action. Maybe this means voicing your thoughts. And thirdly, finally, practice your hunger. Turn your hunger, your desperation, into devotion. So it's a big topic and actually a really big challenge, um, but also really exciting. Both archbishops at the beginning of the year, um, they, they called all the Christians in the UK to pray every day for the nation from the 1st of February. Um, and if, if we can see breakthrough because we pray and fast, then why not, you know? Why not? Tyson says in his book, don't you want him to play a larger role in your story? Fasting creates the space for that. So let's let God 
play a, a larger role in our stories, as individuals, in our story as a church, in our story as a generation. I think fasting can be a really hard thing to do on your own, so I'd love actually to give you an opportunity to join me and some others in the church in fasting for the rest of the Tuesdays in Lent. Um, how it's going to work is at 8am prayer on a Tuesday morning. We're going to be set the prayer topics and the thoughts for the day and then we'll carry on as a community praying and fasting for these matters until groups in the evening. So it's roughly an 8 till 8 fast, so 12 hours together. Um, there's absolutely no pressure to join this endeavour and if you do, you can fast in any way that you like. But I'm just really excited um, about what we're going to see happen because of this. And so as we start, I'd love just to read a couple of verses from Isaiah 58 before we begin this journey together. And then we'll pray and go into some time of worship. This is the kind of fasting I want. Free those who are wrongly imprisoned. Lighten the burden of those who work for you. Let the oppressed go free and remove the chains that bind people. Share your food with the hungry and give shelter to the homeless. Give the clothes to those who need them and do not hide from those who need your help. So I'm just going to pray before we worship. Do stand with me if you'd like to so we can get into that worship posture. Father, we thank you that you, you are on our side. We thank you that you are with us in this time where we can feel so powerless. We thank you that actually we have the power of heaven on our side. Lord, we pray for this next season. Lord, would you guide our hearts into a place of devotion to you? Lord, we pray that we would see the oppressed go free. Lord, we pray that we would see people bound by chains, whether it's mental health, whether it's depression, whether it's any type of addiction. Lord, we pray that we would see people go free. We pray for the state of this nation, Lord. We pray that you would be so faithful and true during this pandemic. But God, we turn our eyes to you and we worship you. We praise you. We thank you, God, for your glory, for your grace. Amen. 